Large and heavy as they might be, the Navy's ships are affected by weather and what goes on in the ocean. Operations and planning depend on knowing about all of these conditions. My next guest is the first in a series of interviews exploring the missions under the Naval Oceanography and Operations Command. Today, we start with the commanding officer of the Fleet Weather Center in Norfolk, Virginia, Captain Aaron Acosta. Captain Acosta, good to have you on. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity today. And just begin by telling us where the Fleet Weather Center fits in the general Department of the Navy hierarchy here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. So we're part of the Naval Oceanography community, and we fall within the information warfare community writ large for the Navy. So I'm one of six major commands within the Naval Oceanography community, and I'm one of two fleet weather centers. My sister center is in San Diego, California. So we each span roughly half the globe in our support for the fleet. That kind of answers my next question. What is the scope of the area? And I guess it's the East Coast all the way around to where the uh, San Diego side leaves off going west. (laughs) Absolutely. So we cover many airfields in the eastern section of the United States, cover the Gulf Coast, the eastern seaboard across the Atlantic and Mediterranean until about the Suez Canal. I do have some forecast and responsibility coverage in CENTCOM, but mainly Suez Canal West. Got it. And I guess, is it fair to say that operation of a ship versus operation of aircraft And I guess perhaps you can tell me operation of submarines each have different weather parameters, weather effects that they care the most about. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So that's part of our mission is we provide a shore-based reachback capability to any fleet asset that does not have an organic METOC, meteorology and oceanography support system or unit. And so we absolutely provide forecast support for surface ships, for aircraft, as well as submarines. And even different ships and different type of aircraft platforms all have capabilities and limitations or how the weather will affect their ride, their capability and their systems on board. So that's really where we come into play. And for an aircraft carrier, this is just kind of a detail question. Could it be that you could find that, well, things on the surface are pretty calm, so you're not landing on a bobbing cork, but when you get upstairs, there's lots of things to worry about. Yes, absolutely. So I have two subordinate commander commands that fall under my purview, one of them being the strike group oceanography team Norfolk. And so that command deploys what we call unit of actions or aerographers, mates, forecasters, weather forecasters on board the carriers and the large deck amphibs to to support just that. A range of operations, everything from anti-submarine warfare to surface and how the carrier and the accompanying ships are riding, as well as their aircraft. And not just to your point, launch and recovery, but also maneuvering around any significant weather systems, whether they're conducting operations or exercise. And what is the output of your center? Is it advisories? Is it graphics of the atmosphere? I mean, what do you actually deliver? Yeah, absolutely. We deliver both. From a weather forecast standpoint, we forecast and provide graphic and text weather forecasts for surface ships, for aviation assets, as well as for submarines. We also produce in the Atlantic Basin and Gulf Basin uh, high winds and sea warnings. And so the fleet is aware of where conditions may be hazardous to their operations. We also provide tropical cyclone support. And so we are the Navy's dissemination node, if you will, for the National National Hurricane Center forecast and SERS products during the hurricane season. And so not only do we ensure that fleet assets and naval installations receive that information, but then we forecast onset of hazardous weather. 
So surge, tidal concerns, winds, as well as rain amounts that they can expect as well as the onset. And that really informs installations along the Gulf Coast and Eastern Seaboard, uh, such things as do they need to sort of the fleet? Do they need to shut down the base? And when do they need to shut down certain services as well as the recovery aspect on the other side? So we're really providing those point forecast to installations. We are speaking with Captain Aaron Acosta, commanding officer of the Navy's Fleet Weather Center in Norfolk, Virginia. And just describe for us the type of infrastructure, instrumentation, equipment, capabilities you have to be able to gather data and predict the weather and weather patterns. Our building is on board Naval Station Norfolk, and we have a myriad of either incoming satellite information, so satellite graphics, observations, as well as National Weather Service provided observations and forecasts when it comes to our assets within the United States, the naval activities like airfields within the United States. And then we have forecaster toolkits, computer systems, and programs that our forecasters use to produce and disseminate their products. We very much have a partnership with the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center, as we already discussed, when it comes to our continental United States fleet activities, where we have aircraft and where we have ships. And way out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, for example, probably the National Weather Service Do they leave that to you to predict and look at? I mean, do you have the capability of predicting mid-Atlantic or South Atlantic weather? We we absolutely do. So one of our major centers within Naval Oceanography is Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Center, and they really produce our atmospheric and our oceanographic modeling. So we ingest upwards of 40 million observations a day, either by organic surface buoys, ships and aircraft that are taking weather observations or satellite-based observations, and we ingest that in the models. And then we use the models to produce our forecasts. Obviously, when we're in the middle of the ocean where that data is sparse, that's why it's important that we have those forecasters on board those surface units so they can use their eyes as well. (laughs) When it comes to sea state, as well as using organic radars and such on the actual aircraft carriers. And so if we need to do flight operations in and around thunderstorms, for example, we can do that and we can do that safely. So the ship CO and the warfighters can conduct their mission safely and maximize on time station. And humans actually are pretty good sensors with eyes and you can even smell changes in weather, I've noticed. So is that at least at the peripheral, a little bit of it, those people out there? They're on the ships? Yeah, absolutely. Both the forecasters on the ships. And when we talk about producing our forecasts for the ships and platforms, we're not just talking about supporting the actual platform and how it might be riding on sea. Very important, but we're also looking at different weapon systems on the ships and how they're going to be impacted by the weather from an electromagnetic spectrum standpoint, and as well as human weapon systems or humans as well. They're impacted by cold weather and hot weather and and rain and so on and so forth when they're out on the flight deck. But yes, our observers absolutely do take observations at sea and that goes into account when we produce our forecasts. So therefore, the platforms that are served by the weather forecasts are also sensors to help produce the weather forecasts. They are submarines, surface ships, aircraft alike, as well as autonomous vehicles and autonomous sensors that our community, Naval Oceanography, deploys around the globe. And what are some of the human capital requirements? Give us the scope of how many people work there, how many uniforms, civilians, contractors. Operationally, what do you look like in terms of people? 
Yes, so we have a combination of IT and data analysts, uh, big data movement type expertise on board, as well as civilian military, military being officers and enlisted forecast personnel with some contract support where and as needed. So locally at Fleet Weather Center Norfolk, we're predominantly military. We have about 160 folks on board, 35 of which are civilians. My civilians are a mixture from administrative to security to IT to actual forecasters. But for example, you might have different dynamics. One of my subordinate 05 commander commands is the U.S. National Ice Center. So they provide global to tactical snow and ice forecasting where the nation needs it. So not only to Navy, but to the Department of Defense. And so they are opposite in their demographics where they're civilian heavily, particularly master ice analysts. So it really just depends on where you sit and where you are in a community, whether it's predominantly military or predominantly civilian. And you mentioned collaboration with the National Weather Service. What about some of the other governmental units? I'm thinking, say, of NOAA, or I guess maybe they encompass the National Weather Service, but also the Coast Guard, for example. So we support and work alongside and data share with all of the above. For example, when I talk about forecasting at sea and one of our main mission is ship routing. So what that means is we route ships around significant weather within the Atlantic and Gulf basins, as well as help them to best position their asset if they're conducting a specific operation or exercise. We don't just do that for U.S. Navy Greyhawk ships, but we do that for Coast Guard cutters as well and special mission ships and Army platforms that might be transiting through the area. A recent example would be the Coast Guard cutter Healy did a Northwest Passage, so around and through the Arctic. So we had master ice analysts on board to make sure that they were safe and navigating through in and around the ice, as well as my ship routers and helping them navigate safely out and across the Arctic from the West Coast over to the Boston. So it's really a whole of group effort. And what about commercial shippers? Some of them are pretty big companies and might have their own capabilities. Any collaboration on that side too? We have you support to the Military Sea Lift Command, which is a lot of our shipments and cargoes and assets back and forth across the Atlantic. So we work very closely with those ship masters to make sure that they're navigating safely in and around the hazardous weather across the Atlantic Basin. Yeah, if I was operating a cargo ship, I guess I'd want to know what's the Navy saying about the weather because <laughs> that's the best <laughs> yeah. indicator. And, and finally, what about you? How did you come to this particular job? Sounds like a pretty interesting billet. I quite enjoy what Naval Oceanography provides and how we support the fleet. So I'm a Naval Academy graduate, oceanography undergrad, a BS in physical oceanography, and I kind of stumbled upon the major. It was a math science, physical science type major. But when I found out that I could both serve my country and wear the uniform, but also practice a science I love, it was a perfect win-win for me. And the more I had a couple uniform professors that would talk, share these stories or talk about the impact that we really have so that the fleet can do their business. And we're part of their business. We're part of the kill chain or the Navy's lethality. We make sure that they can do it safety. We make sure that they understand how their weapon systems will perform given the physical environment, et cetera. And so that just excites me. When I first got a commission, I started out as a surface warfare officer, but I transitioned to our community about a little over 19, almost 20 years ago. And I've just been served at various components and aspects of it ever since and enjoying every moment of it along the way. But you have had ship deck time too in your career. So you know the effects of what the work that you do now. Absolutely. Both as a surface warfare officer and then as a METOC officer, as a naval oceanographer, I deployed on a carrier about a decade ago. So we have a true sense, to your point, on exactly how the environment can affect us. 
Captain Aaron Acosta is commanding officer of the Navy's Fleet Weather Center in Norfolk, Virginia. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and happy to discuss how our community supports the fleet anytime, any day. Amazing sailors doing great work on a daily basis. And before we let you go, there's a long history to weather forecasting and a piece of it just surfaced recently. Yes, absolutely. So we became aware of the last surviving weather forecaster. She was a member of the waves from World War II. Wow. Uh, 98, 99 years old, still living on her own in New York City. And recently when we supported New York Fleet Week, some of our weather forecasters were able to meet her and share a lunch with her and break bread and just share stories. And you have to remember back when she served and was part of the way they had a certain capability and you didn't see a lot of senior women in leaderships. And this particular team in particular had both female senior enlisted as well as officers. And that just meant the world to her as well to see how far that we've come in our capability. But just what a rich exchange, both for the modern sailors and the World War II sailors. And what is her name? And her name is AG2 Lucille Posner. Well, God bless her, and let's hope she keeps up with the weather still in New York City. All right, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we hear from Commander Christopher Tuggle of the Naval Anti-Submarine Warfare Center in Yokosuka, Japan. Find all of the interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you wherever you sail. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. 
I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just 
stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.